So back in February, I sat down with Dr. Tom Hughes and interviewed him about neuroscience, how he found himself at MSU. Dr. Hughes teaches advanced cell and molecular biology here, and his research interests include biophysics. I started recording halfway through our conversation about MD, PhD versus just an MD, and after debating for a while whether to cut it out or leave it in, I think the net gain is positive. It definitely makes for a long episode, but we cover a wide variety of the pros and cons of an MD, PhD versus an MD, the dedication it takes, and how it might just be the perfect niche for a certain individual or student. I was also very nervous for this interview, and you can definitely tell by some of the questions I ask and some of the answers I give to some of Dr. Hughes' questions, but I feel like everyone will benefit from this immensely, so I'd rather just keep it in there, um, despite not being 100 on my linguistics or thinking capacity. We start the conversation off by me explaining to uh, Dr. Hughes how ideally, as a physician, I'd like to take research and then combine it with clinical care. And, you know, he backs me up quite a bit. Um, audio is a little rough, but everything's a work in progress here, so. I think what's alluring to me about that is the idea that you get to mix research with some clinical work, but that's also... I feel like as a if you have a private practice as a physician, you can also do that in a sense. You can take emerging literature and clinical trials and and all that stuff and, and use your own knowledge and, and view of the field and practice your own medicine as a art form that way as well. Well, that's the vast majority of physicians, <laughs> yeah. right? And so most, a lot of people who go to medical school... Uh, you know, go on to practice medicine. A few go, hey, I think this research is more what I like to do. Yeah. And and then you don't even have to necessarily go get a PhD in order to do research. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the NIH intramural program will pay off your dad if you want to go do science for several years at the NIH intramural campus. Mm-hmm. So after you get your MD, MD? interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a there are a lot of programs for people who you get your MD, you think, no, actually, I kind of want to do this. Yeah. There are programs to do that. Right. Well, because I I can easily see myself being with patients and seeing you know say like type one diabetes or something over and over in a certain population. And it would be frustrating for me not to dive deeper into the causes for those patients and to take an observation, anecdotal evidence, Mm -hmm. and try and not further figure it out. So let me give you the downside, (laughs) right? Yeah. You go to medical school? Yeah. You want to be a practicing physician? Yeah. You're a money loser if you're doing science. Yeah, that's... Another right? thing, because no one can fund you. Well, they can. You can get funding from the NIH. Okay. But then you're not going to be any good in the clinic. Let's see. 
Do you really want to be an amateur in both places? No. So that's where the dual training works against you. So Ted Dragea's example is beautiful because genetics informed what he did as a physician. Yeah. The blood he collected as a physician informed his genetics. Those things work together synergistically. Mm-hmm. For every Ted Dragea, I can give you nine examples of people where they tried to do cell biology and treat diabetic patients. Yeah. And it was a disaster. Okay. So... I mean, I'd you know, maybe that's it's the, quality over quantity, maybe. You know, so... In quality over... Quality over quantity. In what sense? In quality of pursuits over quantity of pursuits in life. Yeah, you know. <laughs> pick your thing, right? Right. I, I had a student who was... Um, an engineer interested in biomaterials, mm-hmm. did an MD-PhD in orthopedics where she designs new kinds of implants and implants them. Okay, that's another example of where a PhD in material science and an MD in orthopedics yeah. worked. Right. Great example. Now, those as soon as you start talking about those examples, though, the other thing you got to know you, the only jobs for you to do that, to practice both things, are going to be at major medical schools. Right. You're not. That's not going to be Montana. No, because no, you have you're highly specialized, and they're going to be seeing highly specialized patients and special cases. And that's right. That's right. So you're tracking towards a very right. Yeah. So my friend, my my former student, Robbie Mueller. Yes. Did you meet Robbie? Yes, I did meet Robbie. He would love to live in Montana. Right. He's in Boston. (laughs) He's going to be in Boston or San Francisco or Seattle, but he's not going to make it back to Montana. But he gets to help people in a way not a lot of people get to. Okay, so those are all... all, (laughs) You know, and another way to do it, I mean, I used to talk to, I used to counsel MD-PhD students at Yale, and, and they typically wanted to be a mother of three, concert violinist, vitriol retinal surgeon, and, and, and I would say, can you find a role model that looks like where you want to be? And, and if you can't, that should tell you something, too. So... Well, and plus you know? it's like, how much as a as a human being can you handle, and how do you, you know, there's well, and it isn't just the human being; it's whether or not they're even going to. There's a there's an ecological niche for you. Yeah. So, for example, if you're an MD PhD and you're hired into say internal medicine at Yale, they they can't afford to have it it used to be 20 years ago and if you talk to old guys they'll give you completely different advice <laughs> it used to be that 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 like in an ophthalmology department that I was in in the 90s you would see on average six patients a day um you had your own lane you had your own equipment and you did have two days a week you could do research by the time i left yale the only way to survive as an ophthalmologist was to see 22 patients a day interchanging lanes with other ophthalmologists using standardized equipment. Mm-hmm. The workload literally went up. Mm-hmm. 
15 patients a day. And that was just to, to, to survive, right? There was zero time to do research. And if you talk to a lot of folks who, you know, a lot of my friends who came up trying to do both things, they'll tell you that doesn't work anymore. Like yeah. Financially. The, the, really? Yeah, the university can't afford to have you doing that. Hmm. So, so there, you know, you kind of want to be careful about mm -hmm. that. Do you think physicians, so my limited exposure to the medical field is I worked in the ER here mm -hmm. as a tech. Mm -hmm. So, and I understand the ER is a very different place than most clinical settings. Patients mm -hmm. are in and patients are out. Mm -hmm. Patients are being flown in and, mm -hmm. and then they're leaving. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of like follow-up care with patients and physicians. You kind of are just there in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so as far as applying medicine and using not novel techniques, but being able to put your own finesse on medicine and applying it to patients, say like in family medicine, if you mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. Someone with diabetes or, mm -hmm. you know, in a family, how, how can you use literature and emerging knowledge? To well, that's better... the job of any physician. Is that the job? Okay. That's the job. Right. That and should be, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And any modern physician should be hopefully doing that. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's beautiful. Maybe that's yeah. all I need. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's just being an informed Practicing physician, right. following best practices. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's all I need. Maybe I don't need an MD PhD. I, you know, I would. <laughs> I would. St you've got. You know, there are a few people for whom that program is a great idea. People who have want no family life, some family life. It's pretty monastic. Yeah. And it's people who identify a place where that dual training really works, that that makes sense. So like HIV, perhaps? Mm -mm. No. Infectious disease? No way. Really? Uh-uh. Uh -uh. You're either a researcher or you're a physician. There's no place dual training helps you there. Okay. But the two examples you gave, maybe those are... A few exceptions. There are. There are some good examples where that dual training really helps. But you go to interview at these MSTP programs and they'll blow all kinds of smoke up your chimney right. about how this dual training is a wonderful idea for you. Right? The question I would ask is how many of your graduates are now dual practice? Right. I mean, are, are practicing both science and medicine, right. right? And the answer, honestly, for the Yale program, maybe 10%. Wow. So we're, 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 we're running yeah. 15 students a year through an MD-PhD program that takes 10 years, and out of that, 10% of them. The vast majority of my students ended up having to decide, what do I love most? Seeing patients or doing science at the bench? Yeah. And it was that or that. Yeah. That's interesting. And I feel like the reason people become interested in medicine, hopefully, is because they want to help people. Right? Right. And they they have a compassion and interest in bettering patients' lives. 
So how, how applicable is doing research on top of that? What's the biggest cure of mental illness in the last century? Antibiotics. Really? Discovered oh, for syphilis. Discovered yeah. in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. Right? Not, not created by a physician. Physicians don't make treatments. They just apply them. They apply them. So there's a so the researcher is helping people, but it's more remotely. It's it's definitely removed. It, there's a degree Absolutely. of separation. Absolutely, but a hit for a researcher could be saving millions of lives, mm -hmm. not one at a time. Right. So why is there why is there a push for MD PhD? Why is that still a thing if the efficacy of it is so minimal? That's a really good question. That's a policy question. Is it? And it's a real that's a very very good question. So in all of these programs, you can start the program with the best of intentions. Yeah. The question is, can you measure the outcomes? And can you respond to them? Can you close the circle? Right. right? So there's lots of programs where people start something that sounds like a good idea. And then they collect, maybe they even collect data, but they don't actually evaluate it. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then change mm -hmm. adaptively. Happens. Yeah. But it seems almost that there should be, we should reform some some aspect of it where there is more of a bridge between practicing physicians and practicing researchers. Well, they, they, that's all, that's the supposed motivation. It's called bench to bedside translational okay. medicine. And, okay. and that's the idea. And, and that resurfaces over and over again. Okay. Interesting. So every medical school's got, talks about bench-to-bedside and translational medicine. You go on your interviews, everybody will be talking about it. Right. The question is how to do it best. Right. And with techniques that are actually relevant for patients who actually need them. But that's the difference between the basic scientist and the physician. So the basic scientist doesn't... How do I describe this? Okay, so macular degeneration, mm -hmm. a, a major, really difficult blinding illness. It, as the retina starts to die, the macular part of the retina starts to die, it creates this goop called drusen. Drusen? Drusen. Okay. And clinicians and scientists focused on what's in this drusen and what's going wrong with these cells mm -hmm. and wrote book after book after book and chapter after chapter thinking that if they just studied enough patients or measured drusen in enough different ways that would somehow give them understanding. Mm -hmm. It was actually good genetics that showed that it was a complement disorder in the immune system and had nothing to do with the drusen. So the temptation as a, as a physician is to think if I see enough patients and I measure them enough ways, I'll find out what the answer is. Right. People had written huge encyclopedias about mental illness 
and a random dude studying a thing that flew into his petri dish right. which created penicillin is the guy who solved mental illness same with lithium almost. lithium was a complete accident yeah yep so so you can't this this idea that if you study enough patients in enough different ways you're going to get to the answer that's <laughs> not how it has worked and maybe you know maybe that's something as a physician we need to be more aware of is being myopic vision on, on a certain, did I use that term right? Mm -hmm. Just on a certain aspect or a certain, it has to be this way because the patient's right in front of me and this is the only way I can view this problem. Well, but that's a different, right? So, so your job as a physician is to treat every patient that walks through your door and every right. one of them is a mess. I mean, right. they've all got different issues, right? Yeah. Scientist has to find a way to, to get experimental traction on something by eliminating all of the variables right. and really getting serious traction on it. That's a completely different... So i give you an example. In, mm -hmm. in part of this idea of translation, they, they, they had me in a clinical department doing okay. basic science with my colleagues who did surgeries. And my, my friend Dante, his favorite thing was to do vitreoretinal surgery. And his favorite thing was like an auto accident on a Saturday night with a ruptured globe. And he would spend 12 hours putting it <laughs> back together again. And that sounded horrible to me, right? right? The flip side is he would look at me writing a grant and go, oh, dude, that looks horrible, right? We're completely different personalities. Yeah, definitely. Totally different. Totally. And, and so that's really what going, whether you go to medical school or graduate school of any kind is really what it's about is finding out what do you like to do. Right. Like what is that thing you'll stay up till 3 a.m. doing? That's right. That's right. And it, maybe it's writing a grant. Maybe it's putting together a, a globe. <laughs> I really, you know, I mean, people talk about it in complicated ways, but I really think it's simpler than that, right? It's are you happy? Yeah. Because, well, and also it's a, it's a large sacrifice and... If you want to talk about patient care and your quality of life, you have to be happy. Mm -hmm. You have to be passionate about what you're learning. Yes, there's going to be days when you don't like it, but you, in general, should be very passionate about it. Because not only is that going to have a better outcome for the patient, but it's going to make you happier. It's going to make your coworkers happier. And it's, it just, it, that's the only way to effectively do life, I think, is if you're passionate about mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that, right? The, the people who really make change, whether it's in medicine, the practice of medicine, or in science, are really passionate, driven people. Mm -hmm. That's the personality. Right. People like Paul Farmer or just will do ridiculous things for patients and never-ending drive. Those are the people that mm -hmm. make the difference, but. Well, <laughs> and then, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, the, another thing that we don't talk about very much, right, mm -hmm. is the policy issues because typically fall under this rubric of public health where it's okay if the scientist finds a solution, but if the solution isn't affordable. Right. Like you could do gene therapy for gene therapy for some disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Already done. CAR-T. Is in a perfect example. 
Do you know this? For what? Uh, circulating leukemias, but now they're okay. going after solid tumors too. They are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about, it, it takes a whole team of scientists and physicians right. to treat a single patient. Wasn't it also for um, cystic fibrosis? Is CFTR, that that's druggable. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but right now the people who, you know, the, the thing is the, there's a risk. You're introducing new DNA into your patient. Right. So there is an oncogenic risk, but the patients targeted in this are not responding to any other therapy. So they're dead anyway. Right. And so the real pioneer there is Carl June. Have you ever heard of him? I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he really pioneered this hybrid receptors idea and, and got them into prime T cells and was able to create a, an immune response to the cancers. Wow. So this is in leukemia mm-hmm. and possibly tumors mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely will it be. Is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's brilliant medicine. Right. Creating an engineered immune response. Against is, a cancer cell. Against cancer is perfect. It's exactly what you want. Right. So what, what aspect of cancer are they targeting? Are they targeting like oncogenes or are they targeting certain... No, no. They're priming T cells to respond to and, and, and destroy the cancer. And how So they're they... engineering. They're taking the T cells out of the patient, genetically engineering the cells... And then reintroducing them. And reintroducing them. them. Mm-hmm. And how does the T cell know to attack the cancer cell versus a right? Cell? Exactly. So this is all the this is all the it, it, and and guess what? Every patient's a little different. Really. So this is not a therapy in at the moment that's extensible. It's right. not. It's not gonna. You know. I mean, the hope is it will be. But don't you have to tailor specifically the T cells? To the patient. To the patient's specific cancerous mutation. That's right. That's right. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the amazing thing is people who are not responding in any, to any conventional therapies are walking around alive today right? Right. because of it. But, but it's very hard to scale up. They, essentially, Novartis built... Carl June and an entire hospital at University of Pennsylvania just for this. And the idea goes, maybe we can learn enough from this sort of proof of principles to figure out how to scale it and make it affordable. But that's a big, big public health issue, right? How much money can we afford to do that with, right? Right. When we haven't addressed things like hunger in America. Right. Yeah, that's an, that's another tricky ethical thing. Like, as a physician, do you spend half your time feeding other people and half your time treating heart disease? Or how do you, you, you know, know, how, how can you, you make a difference? That? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Not 2017, we lost over 70,000 Americans to the opiate crisis. That's more than the entire Vietnam War. And that was 2017. I don't know what the numbers are for 2018. Sure it's, sure it's higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But is there, okay, so is there That's something? more than auto accidents. That's yeah. more than. Mm-hmm. And is that, is the consensus that that's mostly physicians over prescribing? Or is it poor education on the actual 
like strength of addiction of these opiates and and too strong of pharmacology for the human body to resist or or is it just nature of the beast and you know murphy's law what can go wrong will go wrong you're thinking about it like a physician am i Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) you're thinking about it in terms of people prescription currently available drugs that's what you that's how you're thinking about it yeah yeah the scientist says, how could I make a non-addictive analgesia? Right. That's the cure. But I want to know why in the first place. Like, there, there's so many thousands. No, we know why. There's so many thousands of people dead, so let's... Because we have highly addictive right. drugs. But that shouldn't have... Like, part of me says, like, that shouldn't have been allowed in the first place. Like, didn't someone well, see this coming? Maybe, or? maybe not. I, You know, I mean... Every society has struggled with addictive analgesia. Yeah. Fentanyl was the was the the deal yeah. changer because of its potency. But ultimately, the solution is going to be the scientist that finds the non-addictive analgesia, and we're close. Right, because pain and the importance of controlling pain is always going to be there. Absolutely, for absolutely. So now the question isn't whether can we reduce constipation for opioids, it's can we reduce the addictive tendencies for mm-hmm. these drugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that there is reasonable evidence that the kappa and mu opiate receptors are signaling both through G-proteins and arrestin. Right. And that the arrestin is in fact what's causing the gut respiratory depression, and addiction. Really? Mm-hmm. So the hunt is on for for drugs which will activate mu or kappa in a way that will only activate G-proteins and not arrestin. And not arrestin. This is a so-called biased agonism. Mm. That's the idea. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. That would be that's the fine. That's the basis of Trevina's compounds. Okay. So Trevina's been working very hard at finding biased agonists at the angiotensin receptor for heart therapy and at the opiate receptors for pain. For pain. Mm-hmm. For GPCRs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. So you sent me a paper about. You do gene construction here. First of all, you teach gene construction. I used to. We can't afford it anymore. Okay. I really liked that class. I thought that was a really good class. But you're heavily involved in genetics and in gene and gene construction. Um, What we do here at the university Mm -hmm. is um, help perfect... Uh, fluorescent tools for two-photon microscopy. That's what we do. And you use genetics in a way to do that? Yeah, so we use what we call molecular biology, simply recombinant DNA work, okay. um, to, to um, create tools, fluorescent proteins from jellyfish, corals, all kinds of strange beasties. And and those are useful tools, but they're they're. I, I probably have to step back for just a second to explain it. Yeah. Okay, so so the the limit to how deep you can look into tissue, living tissue, with fluorescence microscopy, mm-hmm. 
is largely due to scattering and absorption. So if you can work at longer wavelengths of light that penetrate tissue further, mm -hmm. that's good. Okay, And there's this really nice technique where if you use very high-powered femtosecond pulses of far red light, you can excite a chromophore because two photons are simultaneously absorbed. Okay. So-called two-photon microscopy. Two photon. Yeah. Now, two-photon microscopy is different than one-photon microscopy because it requires a tremendous amount of power. And it'll only occur right at the focal plane of your lens. So that's the good news, and that's why modern biologists use two-photon microscopes. The thing that most of them don't understand is that the physics of two-photon absorption is different than the physics of one-photon absorption. Mm -hmm. And what's bright in two-photon microscopy might be dim in one-photon or vice versa. Okay. Okay. So, so that means that, well, people have optimized fluorescent proteins from jellyfish and corals and all eels, all kinds of creatures. For one photon microscopy, there's a whole other suite of tools that need to be built for that are two photon microscopy. Yep. And the idea is that you can use these longer wavelengths to excite two photons and see deeper into living tissue. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So there are many people who are, you know, they have animals on treadmills and they're staring at their brains, yeah. and um, and and so that's what they're what they're doing. And so we're funded by the National Institute of Health to help protein engineers, sensor engineers from all over the world perfect their tools for two-photon microscopy. Mm -hmm. We're the only group in the world that does that. That's amazing. It's That's... unique. There probably only needs to be one of us, but anyway, there is one of us. I'll give you a tour. <laughs> you'll, you'll like the facility. Okay, mm -hmm. perfect. So I was also reading some of the papers that you, some of your your, the literature that you had sent and some stuff that I was just interested in. Uh, if you want to, um, there's this idea of GPCRs being able to be tagged with fluorescence. Mm -hmm. And then also the idea of um, using being able to track voltage changes in neurons using fluorescence and visualize it as well. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the things we're being funded for as well, which is to try and create better genetically encoded fluorescent voltage sensors. Mm -hmm. At first glance, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, it's got more problems than you think. So the so he, he, again. How long does a millisecond take? Very quick. I mean, how long does an action potential take? Sorry. A couple milliseconds. A couple milliseconds. So how fast do you have to sample in order to know if a neuron has had an action potential? A couple milliseconds as well. <laughs> right? Yeah. The Nyquist equation says that essentially you need to sample at about twice the rate um, okay. of of your current. So now we're talking about a thousand samples a second. Hmm. 
Okay, now you could, you can do that. You There are optical devices that can sample in the right. thousand hertz range. Mm-hmm. Now you've got the problem of, do I have enough light coming out? Right. And so then you could say, well, I'm going to buy a really powerful laser. And, and you could do that, but now you're going to start to heat the brain because you're putting so much energy in there. So once the brain starts to heat over a certain rate, you're kind of toast. So, so that's actually where we come full circle and say why we need brighter two-photon fluorescent proteins is because the brighter they are, the less power we have to put in there, and the less power we have to put in there, the less heating there will be. So that actually the heart, it's counterintuitive, but the hard stop limit to how much information we can get out of the brain right now is the two-photon brightness of fluorescent proteins. That's the bottleneck of it. That's the bottleneck. Now, maybe we'll get something that's four times brighter. Mm -hmm. The bottleneck will be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But you always move, you know, there's always a bottleneck, right. but that's it. So you, so how do, how do you make something fluoresce brighter? Is that just simply trying different compounds and at different wavelengths and seeing how mm-hmm. excited it gets at a certain energy? It's, um... Or is it much it, more complicated well, than the, I'm making it? No, the fluorescent protein, and there's, there's now, there's sort of three big classes of fluorescent proteins. One's the greens that came out of jellyfish originally, mm-hmm. and others the reds that came out of the corals originally. They've all been modified, mm-hmm. but that's sort of where they came from. And now we have a biliverdin binding near-infrared protein. Okay. That was originally cloned out of eels okay. um, at a sushi market in Tokyo. So those three classes, you basically have a, a single gene that encodes a single protein that wraps up and surrounds a fluorophore. Mm-hmm. In the case of the near IR proteins, it's a protein surrounding the biliverdin, which is circulating in your bloodstream. In the case of the f- green and red fluorescent proteins, it's actually two amino acids cyclizing and becoming a chromophore in the center of the protein. Right. Then the, the properties, the brightness, of the fluorescent proteins is affected by the surrounding protein. So the surrounding protein shapes the electrostatic field that the chromophore sees, mm-hmm. and that shapes its photophysics. So the, the, the way you make different fluorescent proteins that may be brighter or less bright is to essentially either randomly mutagenize and look for brighter guys, mm-hmm that have amino acid changes in, mm-hmm. in cool places, or you can think, oh, I'm really smart, I'm gonna make that mutation or this right. mutation or this other one. Both strategies have worked. Is it, is it glycine or glucine? Glycine is a little amino acid yes. that doesn't do much. But isn't there, I, I swear I just learned about this like two days ago where... Which class? Biochem. Okay. About You're taking acids. 340? I'm 380. And are you, when do you take cell biology? Next, next fall. Uh oh. So, I know. Uh oh. I know. <laughs> are you teaching it? Uh huh. <laughs> oh no. The worst teacher. Great. <laughs> How did you do that? Um, <laughs> well, 
Okay. Yeah, so I mean, anyway, I learned the specific two amino acids that fluoresce in GFP or whatever, and I couldn't, I can't remember what they are, but I don't Ah, yes. The, why did they tell you that? I, I learned it. I just, I think I read it on okay. one and just yeah. an odd sense of information that I picked up. Yep, so that's, they cyclize and form, and, and it's two different amino acids depending on which, there's a tryptophan version and okay. not, and... But but essentially, it's it's two amino acids that have. Did, have you done? Did they show you crystal structure software? Um, I vaguely this? remember it. Do you know Chimera? Chimera. Yeah. Ah. So. Where did you learn about that? Like a like a chimeric organism. Or no, no, the, the software. software. No. Okay. I, I, don't. I want you to go download UCSF Chimera C H I M E R A. And and that will allow you to download any crystal structure in the protein database, PDB. Do you know PDB? Protein database, right? Yeah. <laughs> and PDB 101? I don't know that oh, one. Oh, try PDB 101. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So PDB 101 is a really cool, like they have molecule of the month, and they explain wow. it. It's actually an amazing resource. Wow. That's amazing. And myoglobin, correct me if I'm wrong, was the first to be crystal, to have its complete structure. Mm, I don't remember who the first was, but it's probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's amazing. Although crystal structures were solved for um, before proteins. Um, so I'm going to show you. This is a different wow. version, but it. Okay, That's let's amazing. see. Okay, there's the GFP. Wow. So you see, you can, you can, you see the sequence. You yeah. Can identify exactly where you are. You can color it by structure or. Wow. So these are beta sheets. Mm hmm and they're anti-parallel beta sheets, and they're woven together to form that barrel. Mm -hmm. And what they're not showing here is that a central loop snakes through, mm -hmm. and the chromophore forms right in the center there. Wow. And so it's surrounded by this barrel. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But this is a super helpful tool to have. Right. And I don't know why on earth we teach without having our students use it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my, um, and that's actually why I started Gene Construction. Not because I wanted students to know how to build genes necessarily. I wanted them to have tools. Yeah. Well, I think the more in-depth you understand something, the more, like for me you toss around, as a student, you toss around all these acronyms, you have slides up on a board, but unless I can, like, see something and see how it applies to something and take it and, like, visualize it in a sense, mm -hmm. I, I really don't understand the material or, like, why it's important we know GFP. You know, I think every freshman in, in the CBM program does GFP in Bio 260. Okay in the lab and, and you use DAPI and you mm -hmm. use GFP and you use mm -hmm. also a red a red fluorescent mm -hmm. on quail eggs. 
But mm-hmm. it wasn't until my junior year when I was just reading research papers about, you know, some other disease, I forget, and mm-hmm. GFP came up. And I was like, wait, what is this? Like, let me learn more about it. And then again, in biochemistry, we learned about the amino acids. And I was looking up amino acids and how they're used. And GFP came up again and again here today. So I think it's... There's actually, and you'll find this when you go to apply to medical schools, is there's... Um, there's two sort of competing philosophies for the best way to teach medical school. And one goes sort of, well, we've always done it traditionally this way, and this is the way to do it. And basically, it's two years of death by PowerPoint. It's, it's having people like myself get up and lecture about the basic science mm-hmm. until everybody's passed all their exams and gotten through the boards, and then they go off to the clinic. The other way to do it is case-based, where physician scientists meet with small groups of students around a particular case and assign the anatomy, the physiology, the pharmacology to the various students, and they go off and they learn these concepts around a particular disease state mm-hmm. and patient. And, and the students who do that, I think, what they'll tell you is that they really like that because they, you know, they're motivated to learn it. They know the patient. They know why it is you would want to know about a pneumothorax, right? right? Rather than having it just passively handed to you. Typically, you'll see this called case-based right. medical education. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, that one, that, I, Tostason sort of started that craze back in Harvard in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And it, it resurfaces right. at various medical curriculum. Right. Um, you know, it, I think it depends on the student and the, yeah. and the, and the faculty. It's right. ve- the case-based stuff is very faculty-heavy, and um, not all medical schools want to put the resources into mounting that kind of an education. To me, it just makes sense, though, because... Medicine is an applied science. Mm-hmm. You're applying knowledge mm-hmm. every single day. So why would you not learn how to see a patient, disassemble every single part of their care, mm-hmm. and put it back together and understand why every single choice was made mm-hmm. that way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how, as a physician, maybe you could make a different one based on today's knowledge or based on mistakes that were made. I can do it either way. Yeah, It's, it's pretty hard to learn... To really learn neuroanatomy, for example, right. without uh, a neuroanatomy course. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, many physicians will tell you, yeah, and I forgot all of the stuff I learned anyway, so it didn't really help me. I think basically what happens is most medical schools end up with a hybrid of yeah. those two things. I was going to say, I can totally see a benefit of doing one year PowerPoint, general knowledge, learn the vocab, learn what learn what you need to learn, learn what you're supposed to be learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then year two actually learn that. Well that's what you know? and you know that's what Duke went to. Really? Mm-hmm. So Duke does a kind of an interesting program where they condensed all of the basic science to one year and cut their course content quite a bit. But the beauty is then the students get into the clinic on the second year. So they basically they have second and third year of clinical, 
And then on the fourth, they can actually specialize. So it's kind of an interesting program. Yeah. And for people who don't want to specialize, that is people who are, say, say you got your PhD in laser physics, it's a three-year medical degree and not a four. Which is very useful. So you will see a lot of folks who've already done a PhD somewhere come back and go to Duke. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's a good program. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It is now ten forty-seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about passenger pigeons, or should we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or dread receptors? Yeah. Did you see the dreads? I, did. I read it. Yes, I did. That was interesting. So what's he trying to do? So the idea behind a dread receptor Mm -hmm. is, let me pull it up real quick, is that you can genetically engineer a G-protein coupled receptor to be activated by, they call it an inert ligand, but a non-native ligand. Yeah, what's an inert ligand? It's something that doesn't, create a response that doesn't bind to a receptor and create in the body in the body right it may somewhere else but it doesn't in the body right okay so why would you want to do that because then you can temporally and spatially have you can have temporal and spatial resolution for gpcr activation in specific tissues okay within the body describe an experiment so I think they, what they did... Don't even talk about they. What would you do? So it'd be interesting to have certain GPCRs, theoretically, and my methods are probably off, but it'd be Sorry. interesting to do, put GPCRs in some place that is hyperactive, say like the left temporal lobe for epileptic patients. Okay. Right? Place of hyperactivity. Which 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 GPCR? What would it couple to? So it would couple to a muscarinic receptor. No, no, because a muscarinic receptor is so, a functional acetyl, GPCR. So they used acetyl CoA for a functional for a native normal GPCR, mm-hmm. and then in the paper they used their inert ligand or ligands, mm-hmm. depending on how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, they used clon. CNO. Let's just call it CNO. They Mm -hmm. use CNO, which is some clozapine and oxide. Right. So something that doesn't create a response. Normally. Normally. And now what does it do? And then once it is inserted into tissue or into an organism. Not the CNO. Mm. No, no, no. CNO is is just a perfect drug. Okay. It crosses the blood-brain barrier really quickly. Isn't hydrolyzed. Okay. Clears very slowly. Perfect. Water soluble. Perfect. No effect on the body. You and I could drink a cup of it and we would have no effect. Perfect. Okay, so we get the perfect drug. Okay. Except there's no receptor. Except there's no receptor. So we make a receptor. Okay, so how do we do that? Through genetics. So what they did is they did mutations and screened GPCR genetic codes for all these mutations for one that would bind with CNO. Bind with CNO, but what about acetylcholine? But not bind with acetylcholine. Okay, so now I have a receptor that's inert. I can put it in cells. It'll have no effect because 
all of the things that are circulating in the body, all the transmitters that are released, have no effect on the right. on the receptor. Right. Then what do I do? So then you can insert or inject CNO and observe. You don't even have to inject it. You just put it in the you drinking just water. Put it in the drinking water. Just uh-huh. put it in the yep. organism. Yep, yep. And then you can observe how those specific mutated or designed GPCRs interact in a temporal or spatial specific way. Okay, let's be a little more specific. Okay. So what are G-protein receptors coupled to? G-proteins. <laughs> okay, let's name three of those. G-proteins, oh, there's a, I could draw it out for you. There's a, oh, dear God, know, don't do it. I know, Okay, I'll, I'll make it quick. Okay. GQ. Oh, GQ, GI. Talks to phospholipase C. Right. GI does what? It's an inhibitory. Yep. Of so calcium. Nope. Cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP. So it's inhibitory at the adenyl cyclase. Okay. So it will decrease the amount of cyclic AMP in the cell. GS. GS is excitatory, so it increases cyclic, cyclic AMP, AMP in the cell. Okay. So let's say we took GI so coupled dread. Okay. And we injected it in the temporal lobe. So if you had a GI, which was coupled with dread, meaning it only activated when CNO was mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. you could, so it's a double negative. So <laughs> it would be, those neurons would be active until CNO was induced or introduced. Okay, and that would lower the cyclic AMP in those cells. And lower seizure activity, hopefully, or threshold activity. Totally legitimate experiment. Absolutely. Right? And then you could say, okay, I want to put a promoter in front of that Mm -hmm. thing that only drives the expression of the dread in excitatory cells, Mm -hmm. not the inhibitory Mm -hmm. ones. Interesting. Right. right. You could totally do that. And so so now you can actually put remote control GI, GS, or GQ activation in very specific cells. And how 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 would you do that on a like technically, how would you do that? Experimentally. Mm-hmm. Would you use a certain lead sequence to like or a promoter you would insert a promoter into genes into the well DNA. You, no we have to so <laughs> what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to build a piece of dna and increasingly if you learn how to make these if if you in your biochemistry or maybe god forbid you actually take my class <laughs> you learn how to how the genetic code makes genes and proteins Mm -hmm. then then you can you guys are in a new new world my generation broke their backs trying to isolate and identify chunks of dna carried in the genome and now with dna printing you basically don't need to do any of that stuff anymore everything i used to teach is obsolete. You can take you you can design your protein 
copy paste it into a window and $80 and two days later, it'll show up. So, and they're doing this through yeast and nope, there's no bugs involved. They just send you the synthetic DNA and then you put it in your organism. That's amazing. Okay. So, so probably the quickest, cleanest way to make this would be to take the dread sequence. Right. And paste that behind a promoter that you know from the literature works in the following way. Glue all that together with uh, LTRs on the ends to make adenovirus. And now you can make your virus and off you go. So pretty much it's mostly computer design. And then the DNA shows up. And then you maybe do a few things to get it into the AAV. Maybe you have a company package the AAV for you. And then you're ready to squirt it into into brain. Or AAV2 actually crosses the blood-brain barrier somehow. So you can just do a tail vein injection of a rat and the whole brain will be infected. Mm-hmm. What does AAV2 stand for again? Adeno-associated virus is one of the common tools okay. used by neurobiologists to, to introduce um, a new gene. It's, it's episomal mostly, so it's a gene that's introduced into the cell and it replicates, but um, and, and you get sort of consistent expression for like six months. Wow. Okay. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that background. Okay. <laughs> yeah. it can, it can so you would out. take your dread, you would take your promoter, you'd glue them together, and then you would... You would insert it into your... AAV virus, squirt it into the temporal lobe, and off you go. And off you go. Now the cool part is, right, you can, you can train the animal to do things, for example... You can then put this in the animal, and and you can have the receptor in the animal. Mm -hmm. You're studying a native animal, and then you can introduce CNO into the drinking water, see what the behavior change is, then wait, take the CNO out of the drinking water, let it revert, so you can turn on and off behavior. Right. So another model... Another disease model could be Parkinson, Parkinson's and dopamine, dopaminergic, dopaminergic do, neurons. neurons. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You, there's, you know, it's a tool to control cells, right? Right. The other thing you can do with it, which is pretty cool, is you could, you can sacrifice the animal, put a slice of brain, say, in a dish record the behavior of the circuit, add CNO to the bath, watch what happens to the circuit, remove CNO from the bath. Mm-hmm. So so you can, you know, you can actually go all the way from behavior to synaptic physiology with the tool. Because it's a GPCR. And it and it can be the basis of so many Areas of yeah, of and it, so it's all going to depend on which cell you put it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first ones they put it into the region of the hypothalamus involved in eating. Wow! And the animals on CNO, I mean, it's amazing. They ate themselves. Really? 
Oh, unbelievable. Because it didn't stop inhibitory action of the hippocampus? It wasn't hippocampus. It was hypothalamus. hypothalamus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they went into an eating center and said, can we control it if we turn on? I forget if it was GQ or GS. It would have been one of those. And, And the next thing you know, the animals went berserk, right? So you can, so that it's pretty neat. It's a tool that allows you to literally go from observed behavior to circuits, which is a pretty, I think, pretty cool. Yeah, because it also bridges that gap that neuroscientists have a hard time bridging. Is mm-hmm. we have all these electrical impulses and neuronal like signaling, but how does that translate into behavior? You know, and and how can you view? The brain as a circuit, which which you know it it definitely is, and we the more we study it, the more we realize that it's maybe not specific activity, but relative activity to the rest of the brain. Have Have you ever heard of Karl Popper? Mm -mm. No. So, in a mangled version, his ideas are usually found in the first chapter of biology books. In essence, he was trying to find out what is different between the way Freud is doing what Freud does and what Einstein's doing. He felt they were two different things. He couldn't figure out what is it specifically. And he proposed an idea that we now just all accept, but really ought to be talking about more, where Freud would say, well, Look, I, I've seen two people who were really had domineering mothers and they wet their beds. Therefore, domineering mothers must lead you to wet your bed. And, and then, oh, look, I found another patient who does that. Well, that's even more proof. And then, oh, I found another patient that does that. That's even more proof. And, and what Popper said was, that's not science. That's so-called inductive you look at the world a lot, and somehow it teaches you something, right? So he said, no, no, no. The difference is what Einstein's doing is, is making a, an hypothesis, a theory, a prediction. And there are results you could obtain which would destroy that hypothesis. So his criteria for what science was is that it has to be capable of making predictions that can be tested and which, if the results come out a certain way, destroy the idea. Mm. This is the idea of falsifiability, which they usually sort of screw up. They say, oh, you can never prove anything. And they say, oh, it's only falsifiable. Right. And, and, and usually students kind of just glaze over and go, I have no idea what these guys are talking about, <laughs> right? But... but but it, I think it's a. I teach it in the cell biology course because I think it's really important that students understand the difference. I think both kinds of science are done. But if you say, okay, look, these cells fire a lot when the animal eats, and I've measured this in 50 rats, right. does that mean that those cells are responsible for eating? Possibly. So many, many neuroscientists would say, yeah, that shows that. Just because it's consistent doesn't mean it's correct, right? Okay, you know, (laughs) so that's the the really interesting question, right? 
So what the dreads give you is the ability to say, well, if that's true, then when I express GI coupled dreads in, that, in those neurons, and I record from them when they're spiking, and, that, and the animal's eating, and then I add CNO, and the cells quit spiking, what if, Then yes. Then you, you've proved. What if the animal keeps eating? Then no, because then you've proved that without it, the animal will still eat. So those cells are not... Not crucial for, uh, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's actually an experiment that was capable of disproving that right. circuit hypothesis. Right. So it's this idea that <clears throat> it's one thing to observe, observe a response because of an action, but it's another thing to see the absence of that response because of the absence of that's a it's a critical test yeah right otherwise you and i get to make up all kinds of stories right. totally. we can stick a wire in there <laughs> and say look every time it thinks about mom this neuron fires that right. must be the mom neuron right but unless you remove it and then say can you think about mom and he's unable to then only then could you possibly say there's well you're starting to sound like popper Right. <laughs> All right. But you can imagine why that I say there's both kinds, yeah. right? Because there are lots of people who I think do find science who do kind of build house of cards. Right. They, they 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 make observations and they say, look, there's this very strong correlation between this and this. Right. right? But what Popper would tell you is you need to be able to to break the circuit reversibly yes. to actually test that idea. Which I think is part of the, you know, if we want to get super romantic about science, I think that's part of the beauty of science is, is finding techniques to be able to do that. Right, right. And so from my point of view, I'm a tool builder, right? So most people in, in neuroscience or cell biology are, have a really interesting problem. Mm. And they use the stuff you can get at the store to s try and solve the problem. And my crowd, which there's many less of us, typically we call ourselves like biophysicists. Mm. And we go to the biophysics meeting. And our kind of reason for going to work is saying, well, what problems can't we address right now because we don't have the tools? The tools too. So what's a key thing that if we could make a tool would really... So, almost like engineers. Absolutely. Sometimes you'll hear it. There's a very popular major at MIT now called neuroengineering. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to, to do something like that here because I think that's exactly right. So, it's a combination of engineering and biology that allows you to build new tools, right? Like we were talking about fluorescent proteins. It's a perfect example. Right. So... You know, then you, you publish a tool, you tell people about the tool, you distribute the tool. The real value of the tool becomes apparent maybe five years later. And, and basically, it's, you know it's really valuable if it's being used in ways you never could have conceived of. Mm -hmm. And if all kinds of people are getting really cool progress. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely been the case with the dreads. When the dreads first came out, I thought, cute idea, Brian. 
Um, but but honestly, I think in the last the last ten years have shown us that it, it was actually probably one of the best ideas for a yeah. tool. Because yeah. all kinds of behavioral neuroscientists and electrophysiologists have gotten really cool, interesting results with the tool. Because mm-hmm. it's something that is, it can be applied. G, GPCR is something throughout the whole, any organism, mm-hmm. you know. And so Brian went on. One of the kind of nice tools they did was they designed a different set of receptors in particular, a GI-coupled receptor mm-hmm. that, again, was a dread but activated by a different ligand, inert ligand. And so now you can literally have, in the same cells or circuits, you can have a GS activated by CNO or a GI activated by this other ligand. Uh, and so now you can sort of... You can modulate. Uh, modulate at will. Wow. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's amazing. But you're right. You know, so when we say side effect, drug side effect, there can be a lot of different reasons for that. So we might just be specifically drugging the same receptor, but unfortunately it's on four different kinds of cells. Right. One of which we wanted the drug and the other three of which we didn't want a drug. Right. Okay. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that at the concentrations you have to use the drug, it affects more than one kind of receptor. And so now you've got it talking to three different kinds of receptors. Right. And and you really only wanted it to be specific for one particular one, right? Like like uh beta agonists or beta adrenergic agonists? Yeah. Yep. So in heart disease there's Mm-hmm. Or in cardiovascular disease, there's multiple, they call them beta receptors. Beta adrenergic receptors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. finding a specific drug which will bind to beta but not alpha adrenergic receptors is really important for the health of the individual. Well, now it's actually gone beyond that because... In fact, the beta adrenergic receptor was the first. If you take the beta 2 adrenergic receptor, which is the drug target in heart mostly, Mm -hmm. the model that we I would have taught you 15 years ago was the ligand binds the receptor, and the receptor switches to an active state. It activates G proteins. Could have called that like a two-state model. They're like on and off. Right. Brian Kabilka and Robert Lefkowitz showed with a variety of different biophysical techniques, energy transfer, spin labels, that different agonists stabilize the beta adrenergic receptor in different conformations. So it isn't a one conf, a two conf, mm-hmm. two state model. It isn't on and off. It's off or on in maybe six, seven, eight different ways. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that really kind of changes your landscape. Yeah. So cardivol versus isoproterenol stabilize the beta-2 adrenergic receptor in completely different conformations. Wow. 
okay? And, and those different conformations have different efficiencies at stimulating G proteins versus arrestin. So biased agonism is searching for the agonist which preferentially stimulates the pathway you want and not the one you don't want. And this is all through designing a ligand. I wish it was mostly, you know, or that's that's another, remember how we were talking about fluorescent proteins and how you could either try to make smart mutations or you could make lots yeah. of random ones. And just hope for it. Yeah. And hope for it. So mostly that's still the, it's still the case that you discover ligands for receptors accidentally. You have, so a, a typical large pharmaceutical company would have what we call a library yeah. of like 2 million compounds yeah. that chemists have made that might be drugs. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so then you have an assay. Right. And a robot, and you put those compounds on those assays. Yeah. And you find out, do any of these stimulate the beta-adrenergic receptor? So that's the classic way. Right. It's called high-throughput drug discovery or drug mm -hmm. screening. There, are, Brian Roth was on a paper that just got published two weeks ago in which they used the crystal structure of D4. It was D4 dopamine receptor and they they computationally tried to dock I think it was on the order of 40 million chemical structures and they got a bunch of hits and then they actually went and synthesized them those things and um, and they found a bunch of new ligands for the D4 receptor. So they sort of showed conceptually about two weeks ago that you maybe you don't actually have to wade physically right. through a library of three million compounds. Right. Maybe you could do it all virtually. That's dependent on having the crystal structure of the binding pocket, right? right? If you don't have that, but if you have that, and more and more GPCRs are being crystallized. So. Right. Because to me, it seems like we have, you know, we have the amino acid sequence, we have the peptide sequence, we know how they interact chemically on between hydrogen bonding and disulfide bonds. Mm, we don't. Or do no. we not? No, we don't. Really? That's why I want you to go get Chimera. So, the, <laughs> okay. so, so here's Popper's. Here's how Popper would say it. Okay. All right. You can look at the primary sequence of a protein. Glycine, glycine, serine, threonine, glycine. Right. Okay. Can you predict, based on that, what the structure is going to be? My, my guess is no. Well, you know... Like it should be, but apparently not. You know, it's increasingly becoming sort of possible um, because we have so many crystal structures you can start to ask well would this sequence fit onto this structure mm. could I map this right. onto that right. so increasingly as we have structures we can ask that question but just looking at the thing can you predict 
That's going to be an alpha helix. That's going to be a beta sheet. That's going to be a turn. Turns are notoriously difficult. Which way they're going to turn? And so, so no, we don't. We we don't. We don't yet. We're not quite there right, yet. Because the three D structure is not only dependent upon the primary sequence, but also like relative proximity between amino acids. There's that tertiary structure, yes. right? And so it's got to fold and then fold yes. and then refold yeah. and then fold again. And now you're going to have this thing, right? right? And and so we're not quite there. So you're playing a game of odds. But now that we, one, now that we have the conditions necessary to crystallize G-protein coupled receptors, mm -hmm. once, first we know you can do it. Yeah. It's always the person who does it the first time. And that was Chris Pelchowski with the rhodopsin was the okay. first crystal structure of a GPCR. Wow. Once you knew you could do it, yeah. then then everybody wanted to do it. Until then it was every the, the gospel was you can't possibly crystallize a membrane protein. Because nobody nobody done it. Because no one had thought Oh, you're gonna find lots and lots of people who will tell you what can't be done. Huh. And it's that person who says so Ben Novak, yeah. he was a student in my gene construction class. Wow. And he kept telling me, I want to re resurrect the dodo bird. Yeah. And and he has not given up. No. No. He's he's still going for it. He's funded. Now the CRISPR-Cas9 system might actually allow him. And there's lots of people, including myself, who told him, no, that's not going to work. But he, he refuses to listen. Yeah. I read the, the article you sent and then yeah. I watched his TED talk and and he's obsessed. Yeah. He's completely obsessed with Absolutely. Like, Dude, it's a passenger pigeon. Like they die. Like let it like Get over they it. They die all the time. Get over it. No. 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 Slowly obsessed That's with it. That's our Ben. That's amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's amazing. So, it's a very interesting phenomena that you'll get to see going forward. You, you don't get to see it retrospectively. Mm -hmm. Once somebody's done something that's really cool, like Carl June's CAR-T, it's like, yeah, duh, that's, that's brilliant. That's exactly what you want to do. But, you know, what you really want to do is sit down and talk to him about how much pain and grief he got before he showed it could be done. Right. Because I'm sure people told him that was crazy, dangerous, ridiculous. Right. right? There's always people who are going to tell you it isn't going to work. And you have to have that drive to make it work. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, another one, Yamanaka. I'm not familiar with. So we all... We, all of us got up and taught cell biology for the last 30 years saying once a cell is differentiated, oh, yeah. it's differentiated. That's it. Can't go backwards. Can't be done. That's, that's what we made you guys memorize right. and, and write on your exams. And Yamanaka, he, he figured out a clever way to know how a cell would be. A, he found a clever way to engineer a mouse. Okay, so he found a clever way to to he, he he had a gene that came on when the cell was a stem cell. 
So you could take stem cells and you could say, well, what are the genes that come on when you're a stem cell? Yeah. And there he had like a whole bunch, maybe 40, let's say. Yeah. And he was studying one of those and he found out that if he knocked it out, it had no effect whatsoever. Stem cells were still stem cells. Wow. So he made a knockout mouse that didn't have this thing. God knows, I don't think we still know what that thing does. It was just some right. gene that comes on when you're a stem cell. Right. But it wasn't it wasn't critical. Okay. Then he went back and he engineered in antibiotic resistance into that gene. He replaced the normal coding region with antibiotic resistance. So that if a cell was a stem cell and it had turned on this gene, it would be antibiotic resistant. Whoa. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So now he's got mice. They're happy adult mice. And if he could take some of their fibroblasts, terminally differentiated cells, and drive them into a stem cell state... Mm -hmm. they should become antibiotic resistant. Right? Yeah. So that was the assay. That was the clever trick that gave him... So he made a mouse where if something he did turned those cells into a stem cell, they would become antibiotic resistant. So if you take fibroblasts and you grow them from an adult mouse and and you just grow them normally and you put the antibiotic on there, they all die. Because none of them are stem cells. Right. So then he made like 24 maybe viruses that would produce transcription factors that are known to come on in stem cells. Interesting. 24 different ones. Okay. Dump the whole cocktail on some stem cells, on some fibroblast cells. Okay. Waited, put antibiotic on there, and lo and behold, there were a couple of colonies that were antibiotic resistant, wow. meaning they had somehow turned into stem cells. Wow. So then he started saying, well, okay, maybe I don't need all 24. What if I just do them one at a time? Mm-hmm. Nope. No one of them was sufficient. It turned out there were four things. And if he expressed those four viruses in the cells, then he got those little antibiotic resistant colonies. Wow. And lo and behold, now we have induced pluripotent stem cells. You can take a patient's Cells, I could take your cheek fibroblasts, grow them out, put these four transcription factors on them, and they will be, they will go backwards and become stem cells. Back to stem cells. And then you could take those stem cells, and depending on what media you put on them and how you grow them, they can turn into heart cells, they can turn into neurons. They are literally stem cells. They are, they have unlimited potential. But with that patient's DNA. With that patient's DNA, so you so can put them back in. So you can put them right back in. Wow. You're not going to reject, right? Wow. So, so, and that was Yamanaka. He just absolutely, everybody, I, I, you know, until 2006, everybody in the field would say it is impossible to take a differentiated cell and turn it into a stem cell. Yeah. That was a known truth. Right. Okay. Right. So, technical question. Is it the replication of those cells that is producing stem cells then? They literally drives them... The the, the individual cell themselves is reverted back. That's right. And despecialized. That's right. What? Yep. That's crazy. Yep. Drives them completely backwards into the stem cell state. And then they start dividing. They're happy. That's amazing. Yep. 
Yep. And, and, <laughs> and you know, and now, right, that's taught as gospel, right? Yeah. So everybody goes, yeah, of course, you do induce pluripotent stem cells. But what's hard to communicate is how heretical Yamanaka was in trying to do this. Right. Imagine like all the sleepless nights of, of trying to figure it out and being like, what am I going to do? That first paper is a brilliant paper and, and it's, and it's um, really nice science. It's a gorgeous paper. We, we read that paper in, in, in my class. Okay. So if you take my class, we'll, we'll read that. We read 10 papers that led to Nobel Prizes. Wow. And so I it's might, kind of fun. That one might not have be able to wait. I might have to read it before. Just, <laughs> just because. But <laughs> it's a good paper. Yeah. It's a really careful. The, 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 the problem, I usually do that at the end of the class. Okay. Because he uses so many modern techniques. So the thing that, that we have a hard time, almost impossible time of teaching here is the techniques. Yeah. And and I, w I wish we had more lab courses. I yeah. wish we'd spent more time doing that because I, I, I think that it's sort of important to know how it is you know these things. Yeah. Rather than just memorizing the book. Yeah. Um, but, so anyways, that, you know, so the, the Yamanaka paper, he, he, it is real, it's state-of-the-art molecular biology. It's every cool, difficult technique you can imagine in one paper. And so I usually have that. Save it to the last. I usually save that to the very end so that everybody is, you know, confident enough to, um, to sit down with the paper and not freak out because right. it's alphabet soup. Right, and probably appreciate what... He's combining. You know. Yeah, you know, if you're freaked out about the language and you don't <laughs> understand it, then it's really hard to appreciate the paper, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was always a that's always been a trick of mine is to circle something that I don't know and go and look it up and then write it out in layman's terms, like it's a copy and paste, mm -hmm. like you know, mm -hmm. CRISPR copy and paste or whatever, like mm -hmm. something, and then that way, once you, you know, I call it like facing the beast or whatever but once you like look at it and you just pick it apart little by little all of a sudden it becomes this very eloquent beautiful thing to read rather mm -hmm. than this acronym soup mm -hmm. you know <laughs> mm -hmm. so the that students sort of they kind of don't get it but at first they're like why is he having us read these really old papers yeah but the thing is that old papers are really cool papers. So we we do uh, one of my favorites is Gobin Karana's paper in which he solves the code. Mm. So he he figures out how what the code DNA code is for particular amino acids. Wow! And it's really a very cool, very simple paper once you get your head around it. And because it's written in the fifties, it's he explains every technique. Wow. So you can really figure out how he did it. And there's not that much alphabet soup. The problem is that as a science gets more and more developed, more and more mature, people start writing and talking just to one another in language that the layman can't understand. doesn't mean the ideas are hard. It just means they made up a code language. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's definitely, it. you know, half of it is figuring out, like, like what what is a G, what does GPCR stand for? You right. Know? Exactly. And, like, and what does it do? And then mapping that out in your brain, and then and then think about that how misleading it is. Okay, so the pros in the field don't call them GPCRs anymore. Oh, great! This is news to me. So, <laughs> well, because they don't just talk to G proteins. Right. Whoops. Oops. So we made up a language <laughs> called. G-protein couple receptor, because we thought they only talked to G-proteins. We called a restin, a restin, because it binds the phosphorylated receptor, and and we thought turns it off. Yeah. And so we called it a restin, but, and we called the receptor <laughs> GPCR. So now there are people that call them the seven transmembrane domain receptors, because... We now know they actually talk both to G proteins and arrestin. Wow. Oops. Great. So our language sometimes traps us. Yeah. Right? It formalizes assumptions we shouldn't be making. Right. But that's, you know, that's also part of discovering new things about science is something you think is very plain and simple. Turns Most into often a mess. Not, yep. is, is always connected to something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so for graduate students in, in my field, I think one of the most important lessons is that you can pretty much start with anything in the lab. And if you think about it and measure it carefully, you're going to find out stuff that you didn't know and people don't know. And maybe you, you kind of think, oh, I want to solve how the brain works or I want to whatever, right? Actually, a lot of times some of the most important observations are just made in the laboratory asking the next good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that shouldn't deter students from looking into that too because like you said, one, you might discover something, but someone may see an application for it that you never thought was even possible. Oh, absolutely. That's the, that's the win. Mm-hmm. If you make something that does that, transcends your own view, that you, that, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for Sure. <laughs> now, what down. do you do with this podcast? So... This is something I just started on a whim. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm compelled by people's stories. I think Montana and MSU is a hot pocket for interesting people and interesting stories. 